Now, I can make a long list of sports I don't like, but you'd all be bored. But one that I don't get at all is horse racing. I mean, why do people celebrate jockeys? I'm sure somebody knows something about this is going to tell me off at the end. But it's like, didn't you win because you had the best horse? Isn't it the horse that should win the prize? Like Grand Prix drivers? Grand Prix drivers, like you had the best car. I've been go-karting. <laughs> you put your foot down. Anyway, jockeys. This is a picture of some horses at the start of a horse race. And we use this phrase that they're champing at the bit horses, which means they're getting ready to go. They're about to go to the races. And Acts 12, this passage, sort of, um, if you were to read Acts as a sweep, you'd find Acts 12 as a sort of pause and the church is chomping at the bit, waiting to go to the world. In the next chapter, the gospel is about to, like, go to the races. The message about Jesus is about to explode out of a small section of the Middle East and turn into a world faith. And it seems like everything is set up for that to go. And then we get this strange pause, Acts 12, where we go back to Jerusalem. Antioch has been the first truly non-Jewish church, and it's a church that celebrates Jesus, it's serving the poor, they're about to go and take on evil and stand up to injustice, and we get this pause, what's happening at Ground Zero in Jerusalem? Now, I was told to occasionally put in something to speak to the young people who are in the service here, so I want to do that now. Young people, there is this thing once called Facebook that your parents used to waste time. I realise no one uses it anymore, except probably me. And one of the things Facebook does is it sends you apparently relevant adverts in sidebars down the page. I don't know what I've been looking at. An advert I got recently was, looking for help finding a Jewish wife? <laughs> uh, but another one that uh, Facebook seems to be very, very keen to, to get me to do is to go to Jerusalem on a pilgrimage. I get pilgrimage adverts to go to Jerusalem all the time. Now, actually, that's a significant question for many Christians. You know, none of us, uh, well, that's not true, actually. Most people in my church are not Jewish, and most have never been to Jerusalem. Yet that is the heart and beginning of our faith. That's where it began. So should we go there, the way that Muslims go to Mecca? Is it a place we should visit? Really, that question, which may never have occurred to you, is addressing a wider question. Is there somewhere the church has to keep going back to to get approval to be a really good church? And Acts 12 is a pause before the gospel heads off to the races and the spirit goes out into the world to say, no, that's not how it works anymore. Wherever the spirit is, wherever people are Christians, they form churches, they appoint leaders, that's the way it works. We don't have to keep going on pilgrimages to Jerusalem. And that's the first thing that we see in this uh, passage. We are free from geography. This is the way the structure of this bit of Acts goes. The church in Antioch are being a church. That's the first sort of non-Jewish church. And then the gospel is freed from Jerusalem. That's Acts 12. And then the church in Antioch begins sending, sending missionaries. So there's this story arc of like the gospel is moving away out of its, you know, geographical enclosure. One of the biggest things I talk to people in our church about, and maybe you're the same, what they find challenging, is people feel that outside, maybe Sunday, maybe a Bible study group they're in in the week or whatever, 
the rest of life feels unspiritual or godless. It's just easy to forget about God because I'm not in my sort of spiritual place. And Acts 12 is really all about saying, well, listen, you did actually used to have to go to Jerusalem to meet with God. And in the first few chapters of the book of Acts, you had to go to Jerusalem to meet a real church. But something changes. Acts 12 is about saying the whole religious system in Jerusalem, the king who rules from there, that temple, it's all corrupt. That time is finished. The door is closing. God's now with his people wherever they are. You don't have to go somewhere to find him. God's people in the Old Testament, before Jesus, they were a nation supposed to display what God is like in one country. But by the time of Acts, things have changed. Did you notice that the story was read? Not only had this nation killed Jesus, they are now killing his friends. The king, did you notice at the end of the story of this nation that's supposedly there to serve God, loves accepting praise as God. That nation has become miles away from displaying what God is like to the world. And Peter, the main apostle, the main leader of the church, he's been saying to people, yeah, it's true, that moment has passed. People can meet God anywhere now. Now, I'm not making any comment about Jewish people today, or indeed getting into any discussion about the state of Israel today. You can talk about that at the end if you like. I will be unavailable. But 2,000 years ago, this nation of light that should have been displaying God to the world had become corrupt. And here in this chapter, God closes the door on having to be connected to a particular place to connect with him. Of course, that must have been inevitable since the story of Acts began. God's spirit is poured out. That means God is present, truly present in the life of every Christian. He is experienced through Christians getting together wherever they happen to be. And the glorious truth of the gospel is that that can happen anywhere. One of our mission partners at church works in a country which I can't even say the name of publicly because it's so dangerous to be a Christian there. And she would basically describe her life there being like a sort of spiritual desert. But then just in her room of her small apartment, she gets together with three or four Christians. She's like, it's like having a cool drink. They've got no building. No one around them even knows they're doing it. It's secret. But that's the way it works now. God's spirit is in his people, wherever they are. And this picture in this story of Peter being free from the imprisonment of this Jerusalem king is a picture that the gospel is free, that we know God anywhere and everywhere. You know, I'm preaching to the choir here, that churches are not holy buildings. Churches are spirit-filled communities of people in every place, in every culture, and then they send people to other places, and churches start there, and they reflect the culture they're in, and they send people to other places. You don't need to keep checking back with someone. Is that an okay thing to do? Should these people hear about God? It's not how it works. Spirit-filled communities springboard people to go and start new spirit-filled communities. Happens everywhere in every culture. 
Weird thing about this story, if you read the rest of Acts, is that Peter is freed, but he just doesn't feature very much in the rest of Acts at all. It's not a very well-written novel. You'd think, oh yes, important plot point, Peter must be freed from prison so he can go on and do important work. No, he hardly features. He's called to one meeting in Acts 15 and then he's gone. And to be honest, he is sort of called to approve what they're doing in Acts 15, but they sort of say to him, we're doing it anyway. And he's like, yeah, I sort of have to agree with you. He's not important anymore. The Jerusalem church just aren't the center of the action anymore. So feel free to follow the Facebook ad and go to Israel. It will be a different type of pilgrimage because it's an interesting country, but you do not need to go there because God is with his church wherever they are. And that means if you struggle, like people in my church family with the day-to-day, feeling very bland and unspiritual and disconnected from what we're doing here, we need to remember that it's not a place we go to meet God now. He lives in us wherever we are. It's not that you need to go somewhere to meet God. It's that you are people meeting God, wherever you happen to be. The horses have galloped away to the ends of the earth. Here's the second thing that we see, free from evil. If you're a fan of Marvel films, which one person in my house is, and I watch them alone, uh, (laughs) you will have noted that just before the big battle of tension, usually Iron Man makes a stupid joke. It's like you can't keep people at a high point of tension indefinitely. You need something to relieve the tension. Comic interlude. Well, this passage, this story as we had it read, did you notice it starts with heavy tragedy and goes via slapstick to dark humor at the end. Tragedy first. Herod, the king in Jerusalem, takes against the church. I think it's probably because he's heard they've started saying that Gentiles can be believers, and that's a terrible thing for him. That's a heresy to him that undermined the control he had over people through religion. And so James, the brother of John, suffers a violent death by the sword. That means he was either beheaded or run through. It's pretty grim. Now remember, he was one of Jesus' closest friends. He's one of the close group mentioned throughout Jesus' life. He's the first one of those original apostles to be killed for their faith. And it's done by a religious authority that these people thought they could trust. You can't imagine, really, the shock of the church and the sadness. And then, seeing as people approved of that, Herod sees Peter too. It's a story of an out-of-control ruler making evil decisions in order to please the crowd and stay in power. This looks pretty bad. Peter, another central figure of the church, also in prison. If you know this story, the background story of Jesus, you'll know someone being imprisoned during the feast, being held in the week leading to the Passover, this is not going to a good place. We've walked on this road before. It's all frighteningly familiar, a public trial approaching the Passover. 
There's going to be another sacrificial lamb here, and it's utterly hopeless. Do you see, Luke tells us the details. Four squads of four soldiers. He's sleeping chained between two soldiers. And the church, of course, at this stage, have no powerful friends. They have no MP who's interested in them. They have no clot at all. They are unimportant, mostly people who used to be slaves who've become Christians. All they can do is pray earnestly, which is what they do. That's the tragedy. Then the comedy begins. An angel appears, and light shines around the cell. It's like Christmas, isn't it? Except Peter, he just stays asleep. Pretty deep sleep. He was tired. All that threats in his life also worn him out. God's doing something amazing here. But Peter, amazing Peter, the great apostle, is literally sleeping through it. And then it tells us that the angel, in verse 7, struck Peter. That's actually just the word for punch. It's like, he won't wake up. Wake up! I'm rescuing you here. And he stands up, and the chains fall off. And Peter ran out of the cell. Except he didn't. He stood there, dozy and disbelieving. And the angel says, you love this, very practical. Uh, You need to put your shoes on. (laughs) We had a thing in my family once where we were all desperate to get out to school quick. And I was like, come on, everybody, get ready. And I grabbed Martha, my six-year-old's hands, and pulled her up the garden path, and we were out the gate. And she went, Daddy, my shoes. And we'd actually walked some of the way to school, just her socks. Anyway, it was like my house. And then it starts being even more like my house in the morning. I love it. In verse 8, the angel says, put on your clothes and your sandals. And then the angel has to say, wrap your cloak round you. Have you had that when leaving your house? Can you put your coat on, please? Is your coat on yet? Can you please put your coat on? The angel is having to do this to Peter. And Peter follows, basically sleepwalking, thinking he's dreaming it all. Past the first guard, past the second guard. The gate swings open, open sesame. The angel has to walk him the length of the street. We get that little detail as well. I think it's because the angel was worried he would just stand dozily in the gate and get captured again. And then Peter wakes up and says, I love it, now I know without a doubt the Lord has rescued me. No kidding, Sherlock. (laughs) This is the hope of the church here. And so he heads round to Mary's house and knocks the door and the servant girl realises him and runs into the prayer meeting and says, Peter's here. And they're all like, you cannot get the staff these days. They're like, Rhoda, You know the actual prayer meeting we're having is for Peter, because he's in prison. So you probably don't want to interrupt us, you know, telling us he's at the door. Poor girl, what was she supposed to do? So she runs back to the door and runs back again and says, I really think it is him. And they're so disbelieving it could be him, they say this weird thing. It must be his angel. Which basically think means that if you're praying for something and it's really unlikely and God does it, don't believe that God's done it. Make up a really weird theology that justifies God not doing it. I mean, there is no theology in the Bible of any of us having a secret angel we can send to knock doors when we're in prison. Where did that come from? They just don't really think that God will do it. It's so unlikely. Then Herod does the normal dictator thing when, people goes, when something goes wrong. He slaughters some people. And then we get that, this very strange little postscript to the story about Herod dispensing food to people. 
Here he is, feeding like the big man. The people in Tyre and Sidon, which are just two regions near Israel, they have to come to him for their food. And because they need him to feed them, he says, yes, I am like a god, feeding all these people. And he dies. And again, this little detail that my seven-year-old son loved, he was eaten by worms. That's Herod the Great. Meanwhile, says Luke, while Herod's feeding the worms, the word of God continued to spread and flourish. You know, there's this verse in the Bible, in the book of Psalms, which says, the Lord in heaven laughs as the nations plot to do away with him. And it's dark laughter in this chapter. James has been murdered. The chapter is very realistic that evil people and regimes for a time do terrible things. But people who think they can increase their own popularity by getting rid of the word of God, God laughs at them, darkly. He says, you're the ones who are worm food in the end. Herod, the ruler of this kingdom, the center of an influential region, he controlled other people's food supplies, a very important man. How did he think of everything that had happened? He probably thought, oh, we had a bit of trouble last year. I had to execute a carpenter and some of his followers. He'd probably even forgotten it had happened. He was such an important person, giving food out to people. But have you ever thought of Herod? We've only ever heard of Herod because of the carpenter. If Herod didn't feature in the story of Jesus, none of us would ever have heard of him, would we? And there's no one gathering around the world today to worship Herod. Billions to worship Jesus. And what God is doing in the world through Jesus that continues through the church, normal Christians filled with the Spirit, that is the story. Everybody else, no matter how important they look, is just a footnote. It didn't look like that at the time, did it? Here is this small, uncool group putting up a few feeble prayers that they didn't even believe would be answered. But they were the part of what was real and lasting and meaningful. And Herod was the one who fed the worms. Uh, I get a Christian magazine that tells me sometimes about Christians in North Korea. That's what this mysterious picture is, a picture of North Korea. And the magazine I got recently was saying to me that North Korea is a church in mourning. The story of James being killed because they're supposed to worship the leader instead. That is a very familiar story to the church in North Korea. And so we should mourn and pray and advocate for that church. But then I, uh, they, my magazine said, we need to pray for the 400,000 Christians in North Korea. That seems a lot to me. So I did a little Google, a little calculation. That's 2% of the population. 2% of the population in this place where you're not actually even allowed to talk about Jesus publicly, even privately. And Kim Jong-un, the evil man who's oppressing Christians, Acts 12 said, he is worm food. Someday that's where he's going. And when he is, there will still be people in North Korea, worshipping Jesus. 
I once did a mission team in Eastern Europe, and as part of the team, there was a woman who was Romanian, who'd grown up when it was illegal to be a Christian in Romania. And then at the moment that freedom had come and been invited to a church service and become a Christian, and now she's a missionary elsewhere in Eastern Europe. And I remember in my youth group, we used to pray for the downfall of that evil dictator. Ceausescu was his name. And what happened? By the time I met her, he was worm food. And someone he oppressed is somewhere else in the world telling people to worship Jesus. The Lord laughs. We laugh. We laugh darkly, but we laugh at the people who think they run anything. Evil as they are, much as they may hurt and crush the church, they will be worm food and people will still be worshipping Jesus. There is only one story that God is always working out, that people come to worship Jesus, they form communities of light that worship Jesus, and then they propel more people out into the world who bring other people in to know Jesus and form communities of light, who then propel other people out into the world. That is the story. Now, I know today we only feel like we have this. You know, our feeble prayers and everyone powerful looks like they've got Instagram and air-conditioned offices and political power, and so we feel like this little minority, but that is normal. It's how the church has gone forward. I mean, I wonder if you could, even anybody here who isn't a sort of history nerd, could even off the top of your head name the person who was prime minister a hundred years ago. Probably just a few of us. And I'm telling you, if Jesus hasn't returned, no one in a hundred years will be setting up churches to worship Boris Johnson. Feels easy to guarantee that. <laughs> that if Jesus hasn't returned, billions of people will still be gathering to worship the Jesus who hears our feeble prayers from our insignificant church hall. That is the story. There's this thing Jesus says once where he says... Uh, even if you give someone a cup of water in my name, I won't forget that. I sort of think, is that really true? I mean, a cup of water feels feeble, at least make them a cup of tea. But what Jesus is saying there is this, the littlest thing you do to contribute to the only worthwhile show in town is infinitely more valuable than lots of time spent worshipping something else. That small 10 minutes praying is infinitely more valuable than 10 hours worshipping someone who will be worm food. Now, I live a sheltered life. I can't imagine probably what it's like for lots of you to work and live in situations where people are against Jesus, to be crushed by that in some ways, day by day. Or maybe it's more informal than that. Maybe there are people who dislike you because you're a Christian. Or you just feel fear, fear of connecting with workmates or family because of what they live for. What they are doing seems so normal and what you're doing seems so weird. People will laugh at me. They will think it's funny. They will mock me. But listen, Acts 12 says, there's only one darkly funny thing about this situation, which is that jumped up people thinking that because the church is small, they can ignore God. That is the only dark humor in this situation. And Acts 12, God is saying, come and laugh with me at that, 
then you can escape the fear of being laughed at. It's a great reversal. I love the way where the power lies in this story. It lies with the feeble Christians, and Herod has no power at all. I love the prayer meeting story as well. The power all lies with this servant girl. Presumably she was sent to the door because even amongst the Christians, she wasn't even important enough to attend the prayer meeting. She's so insignificant. But she's named in the Bible, and she's the one telling the truth to these sort of holy men. That's the kingdom God is bringing. Powers will fall. Humble people will be lifted up. It's the kingdom I want to live in. So Acts 12 says, don't give your life to powerful people who want to exploit you. God is laughing at them. Join in with the only story in town. Last thing, and briefly. Free to join in. I once went to a conference, and a really respected Christian speaker was giving a talk about prayer. And he said, uh, the way that you need to pray is pray together, and then ask each other, do we have faith God is going to do this yet? And if you don't, God is not going to answer your prayer, so you need to get your heads down in prayer and pray more that you will be given faith that God will do this thing. Now, he was commending earnest prayer, which I think is right. But he was sort of saying the more faith you have, the more uh, miraculous things will be done. Pray with faith God will do it, and then you will, like, release the power of prayer. It's not really how it works in this chapter, is it? I mean, they prayed earnestly. We will return to that. But they did pray not really believing that God would do what they wanted, even while they were praying for it to the point that they didn't even think it had happened when it did. I mean, Christians are not the heroes, the faith-filled heroes of this story. Peter has to get punched by an angel and told to put his shoes on, and until he's a street away from the jail, he assumes it's a dream. Even while the miracle is happening, the key leader in the church doesn't really believe that God is working. So, I can't really... uh, even though when you visit someone else's church, you want to make the sermon application for the sake of the elders to say you really must come to the prayer meeting. And I do want to be clear, one possible application here is that. And, you know, you should pray. Many of us benefit from doing that with others. hope that I've covered the bases there, everybody. But I cannot say come to the prayer meeting because God working depends on you praying. It's clear from this that Peter realized, the church realized, and Luke is recording it to say, listen, God is going to do this. He's going to do this no matter who tries to stop him, and no matter how slow the church is to realize that he's doing it, he is going to do it. God is going to do this. Herod is not going to stop him, and the weak church is not going to stop him. I wonder what punch it will take to wake us up to what God's doing. Well, then the question is, why did they keep praying earnestly if they didn't really think God was going to do it? But I think this is the thing the early church did get that maybe we're missing, that you get to be part of the only story that matters, the only kingdom that lasts, the only one that cares for the small person and raises them up. You get to build for the only thing that will outlast everything else. And the main way that you and me get to be part of that is by praying. 
The last time we had one of those Liverpool football parades, you know, not the one we just had, but the one before when they'd actually won something. Uh, I knew a football joke would wake you all up. Uh, we went, and at that stage, our twins were four, and we kept saying, we're going to see the footballers on the bus. And the bus went past us, and our four-year-old Mar Martha burst into tears because she had assumed we'd be allowed to get on the bus. Because that's what always happens. We go and wait for the bus, and then the bus comes, and then we get on. She was most offended and affronted that there was only an amazing bus for footballers, and we couldn't get on at all. But there's a lovely picture in the New Testament of the church being a victory parade of Jesus. And Jesus saying, come and get on. You don't just have to watch Jesus doing victory laps. No, what Acts 12 says is you get on the bus just by doing a really simple thing like gathering with some other faithless Christians who are also feeble and praying with them. You're on the victory bus with Jesus. It's easy and a pleasure and a joy and a gift and an honor to earnestly pray with other Christians, even if you feel like you're a bit of a rubbish prayer and you don't believe that God will do anything. So if you can pray, please do. One of our favorite family films is School of Rock. It's a great film. Uh, I recommend it if you haven't seen it. But one of the things they talk about in that film is they say good music is about sticking it to the man. Basically saying like being a rebel against authority. And there is a kind of call in Acts to stick it to the man. To say, yeah, you're surrounded by powerful people. They are not on your side. They want to hurt and crush the church. And you have to live in systems like that. But those systems will all be worm food in the end. So what's the best way to stick it to the man right now? Let's be clear, it's never to be rude or to fight or to assert our rights over other people. The way we stick it to the man right now, these Herods of the world who will be worm food in the end, the way we stick it to that man right now is by gathering with other people who know God by his spirit, really meeting him in the place he actually lives in the lives of Christians, and then talking and pleading and earnestly engaging with the God who loves us, our Heavenly Father, and seeing what he does. And Acts 12 is about saying that can now happen, and we know it now does happen in any culture, any place, any Christian can join in. Saying, come, don't have to go to Jerusalem. <laughs> come now with the Christians that you know. Get on the bus. Let's pray. Just take a few moments of quiet to reflect what we've heard. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that uh, Jesus wins. We thank you that is the story of history. And I just want to particularly pray for anyone here who's operating in a family or a workplace or an environment where the pressure to uh, bend is incredibly strong. And I want to pray that by your Holy Spirit, you will remind us, remind people in that situation 
that there is only one story, an eternal God who will do what he is going to do through his son Jesus and all of these things that pressure us, he laughs at. Please give us that conviction so that what we do is walk in grace and faith and prayer. Help us join in with what you're doing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.